Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Professor Martin Kuldorf. Uh, Martin is a professor at Harvard Medical School. He has had an extremely enviable scientific career. His publications have garnered over 25,000 citations, and his biostatistical work that he has developed is part of the CDC's um, statistical approved statistical methods for uh, surveillance and risk surveillance. He is the co-author of uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, and he works in spatial temporal modeling, amongst many other things, which I find very interesting. Um, so, uh, Martin, welcome. Thanks so much for uh, coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Glenn. It's a great pleasure. And um, so, I guess, obviously, uh, I suspect a lot, lot of statisticians have heard of you and about you and probably from you at this point. Um, and I am really glad that we can be one of the conversations that's giving a bit more of a statistical focus to the work that you've done. Um, but maybe just to start off, we have, um, you've been, wor you've worked in uh, safety surveillance. You are an eminent uh, professor and academic in the issue of safety surveillance, and you have developed uh, biostatistical methods for safety su surveillance. Uh, for example, spatial temporal modeling, the uh, multiple comparisons, types of adjustments that are required for sound scientific inference. And you've also said a number of interesting things like, you know, these infectious disease outbreak um, models have applications in other fields as well. So that, for example, in oncology. So there's obviously a lot to unpack there. Um, but maybe where should we start? Um, I will leave it to you as the expert. I think it's interesting, the idea of using um, spatial temporal modeling to model infectious diseases because there are a great many of them. Um, and also you've said that you try to minimize the number of assumptions that go into your statistical models. So uh, maybe where, where should we start? Uh, do you think what's a good approach? Yeah, so uh, I mean, there are different important uh, statistical methods used for infectious diseases. But the uh, one that I have been working a lot on is, as you say, spatial temporal models. And the idea there is that when we have an infectious disease outbreak, and it doesn't have to be a pandemic, it could be a salmonella outbreak or a, uh, Legionnaire's disease uh, or something else, uh, it's important that we detect them as soon as possible. Uh, because the sooner we detect them, the sooner we can find what's causing it, and then we can uh, 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 sort of remove the threat if it's, for example, uh, salmonella in some, uh, some food product that's been contaminated. So uh, I've developed what's called space-time scan statistics. And a scan statistic is when you scan an area, uh, either it could be time or ge geography or both. So you scan an area to see if there's a cluster of events. So it's the cluster detection method. Uh, so the idea is that uh, if we have, for example, salmonella, that's a reportable disease. So every case of salmonella needs to be reported to the public health uh, department. And then we can sort of continuously monitor when there is a new case of salmonella, and if there suddenly is an increase, let's say in Brooklyn, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, or salmonella, then we have to investigate what's causing these excess uh, cases. And the key thing that the statistics can do is to uh, detect this as quickly as possible if we sort of run the analysis on a daily basis, then to detect as quickly as possible. And one example is, uh, uh, I think it's, Four or five years ago now, there was a huge outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in Bronx. Uh, it's the second biggest Legionnaire's disease outbreak uh, that ever occurred. And uh, that was detected by the New York City Health Department using these methods of space-time scan statistics that I've been developing, and I work closely with them. Uh, so because of that, these disease outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease could be detected uh, a few days earlier than it otherwise would have been. It would have been detected no matter what. But even two or three days earlier can, makes a big difference in terms of finding what caused this uh, outbreak. It turned out it was uh, a cooling tower at the top of a building that has, had been infected and that was spreading it in the neighborhood. So as soon as that was found, of course, uh, that cooling tower was sort of removed or cleaned uh, so that it wouldn't uh, spread it anymore. Uh, and... Uh, so, uh, so that's very important. The other thing these methods can be used for is once there is uh, an outbreak, they can be used to uh, uh, monitor the outbreak. Where is the outbreak increasing? Where is it decreasing? And so on. And uh, 
so this method has been used during the uh, during the pandemic to monitor um, the COVID when there are uh, uh, new areas that are affected, uh, etc. Cool. And so um, I guess when I think about uh, disease outbreaks, especially at the onset of a an outbreak, essentially what we're having are uh, the data points are, you know, these single instances. Um, it's a number of individual data points. Um, and spatial temporally, you're talking about that the patients will either have, um, it'll be sort of essentially like a, a dot process. Is that, is that yeah. So, so, yeah, so, sort so, of a yeah. point process? Yeah. Yeah. And so we have this point process and then um, um, essentially in this point process will uh, presumably have some correlation in the spatial uh, in some spatial features. And then also temporally, it'll have some correlation. And the idea would be that if um, there are, and then of course there are probably other socioeconomic features as well that you might want to include. So are, what, what are the types of features that you would include beyond space and time to detect anomaly? Uh, so age is often important to adjust for because some dis- many diseases are, are age-dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's one thing that we often include, but we may include other things also to adjust for depending on the disease. And it's not only used for infectious diseases, it's also used for cancer or, or other things. So it depends on the disease. Uh, in terms of correlation, I think, in spatial statistics, there's sort of two things that are interesting. Sometimes we want to study a particular hypothesis, like is uh, the exposure to radon, for example, uh, does that influence the risk of some form of cancer? So then we have me- geographical measurements of the cancers as well as the exposure. Um, and when we do that, we often have to adjust for any spatial autocorrelation because to get proper inference because there could be other factors that we are not adjusting for that is spatially correlated, and we want to adjust for that to get proper inference. Uh, But uh, when we do detection and monitoring, we're actually looking for those correlations. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to look for areas where there is spatial correlation because there's a cluster of cases. So therefore, when we do the outbreak detection, we can't adjust the way all that correlation because that's actually what we want to detect. Uh, so therefore, it's sort of a different setting where you do so, uh, where you do more causal inference. You're trying to find out if this exposure causes this disease uh, in a, with, with spatial data versus in a surveillance setting where you're trying to find out where is there a new outbreak occurring. And obviously, you don't want to sort of treat every random chance occurrences as a new outbreak because uh, if you start investigating them, you don't want to investigate cases that are not related. But in surveillance, it's not so key necessarily to find out if something is uh, statistically significant or not, it's more a question of which ones are the worst to do, worthwhile doing an investigation for. So even if something is not statistically significant, you might still want to investigate it sometimes, and you could still maybe find that three cases were not enough for statistical significance, but they were they got the disease from eating the same cheese, for example, bought mm-hmm. in the same store or whatever. Um. Because I guess the, uh, for example, the legionnaires in the uh, in the Bronx example, presumably you weren't, you know, manually scanning for that location and disease um, combination at that time, or perhaps you were. Um, but is the are are these uh, models essentially are they automated in some way such that they are meant to flag anomalies um, in advance, and then that would. Uh, instigate a manual inspection or how do how do these things actually work in practice yeah so they are automated with daily analysis so um, the the new cases are reported to the health department every day and then usually they run it overnight and in the morning they'll find out is something uh, is there something that is flagged mm-hmm. uh, so and as it, it, it does use different diseases. So it does one analysis for each disease, for salmonella, legionnaire's disease, and so on. But there's no assumptions about uh, the location or the size. 
So the, the space time scarcity that uses a cylinder with a base, the circular base, could be very, very small in size. So it's only one uh, zip code, for example. Or it could be very large encompassing all of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, the height of the cylinder is time, so it could say, okay, there's an increase in the last two days. Or it might be sort of a more slowly emerging thing so that we look for for uh, four weeks. Uh, that has sort of been a, grad, uh, a small but gradual uh, uh, increase in cases for a four-week period. So we don't want to assume where or the geographical size or the temporal size. So that's... Uh, 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 that's very flexible in this uh, detection system, surveillance system. And then the, the uh, and then we adjust for the fact that we're looking at so many different areas and so many different time periods. So we adjust for that multiple testing to see, and then we can sort of say that, well, we put a threshold so that if there's nothing going on for disease, we will get one false alarm per year, for example, or one false alarm every half year, whichever we, we prefer. And then when when is when something is flagged, uh, uh, let's say there's a salmonella thing flagged in in Brooklyn, then the health department will uh, uh, investigate. And this is not research, so health department has the right to uh, to talk to these people and ask, uh, okay, you have salmonella. Uh, where did you go shopping the last week? What have you eaten? Did you eat uh, peanut butter? Did you eat fish? Did you eat uh, 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 some cheeses? Where did you buy it? And so on. And then they can see if they interview uh, 10 people, they can see if there is there a common denominator that they all ate the same brand peanut butter bought in the same store, for example. Uh, of course, in the Legionnaire's disease, it wasn't food. So uh, there... Uh, uh, they looked at different things and they did expect uh, cooling towers as one of the options and they did testing and multiple cooling towers uh, and eventually they found that there was most of them were fine but there was one that was contaminated with uh, um, uh, <coughs> with uh, Legionnaire's disease. Do you have um, a pre-specified uh, set of diseases that you're particularly looking for? So for example Salmonella seems like one that really pops off uh, the top of your head about something that you'd be scanning for um, because effectively we have a, um, well, we have a food supply chain and, um, but for other diseases, are there, is there a common set or is it that you don't even need to relegate yourself to a set because you have a sufficient computational capacity to search? No, it's usually a common uh, set and that depends on uh, the health department and so on. So, uh, for example, New York City monitor, I think, about a dozen different reportable diseases. And I forget exactly uh, what's on the list, but uh, uh, it's those things that... So, so you wouldn't monitor, for example, ear infections. Mm-hmm. It's very common and uh, it's not a reportable disease. You could still do it through uh, electronic health records, uh, but it's not typically to do that. Uh, it's, but salmonella is important because it's often foodborne. So it's actually, you can actually do something if you find uh, something. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't, so another one you would not look at would be anthrax because that's so rare. Mm-hmm. And if you have one case of anthrax, they will be investigated immediately. So one case of salmonella, you wouldn't necessarily investigate, but one case of anthrax, you would certainly investigate it wherever it occurs, whenever it occurs. It's such no a statistical, yeah, so no statistical model, for example, would be needed for that because essentially um, the, the, the data point is sufficient in itself to generate all uh, possible medical intervention. Yeah, you, yeah. so uh, you don't need statistics because as soon as there's one case, you, the health department will go there and try to find out what's going on. Yeah, I, I do like examples like that where, because um, obviously, you know, in when we're in our technical fields, we really do enjoy uh, one creating methods and tuning these methods so that we have this really great data-driven approach to something that's important. Um, But then at the same time, there are plenty of instances where effectively you don't need uh, a sophisticated methodology. The only thing you need is actually the data is the signal in itself. Um, And so obviously there are certain uh, medical outcomes and diseases that uh, would have that. As you mentioned, you know, anthrax, uh, I assume that bubonic plague might be another one like that. Um, Uh, Ebola also, I think. Ebola, yeah. 
Um, and so if you have those, um, obviously you don't need sophisticated statistical methodology to say, oh, let's, uh, let's, let's adjust for multiple comparisons. Cause af after all, we were looking for these other diseases too. These ones you have enough, but for these other uh, diseases like salmonella, you know, trying to say, is this a one-off that one person might've gotten, or is it sufficiently correlated in time and in location such that we actually realize that there's an exposure, um, yeah, and that's why also it's, it's so uh, fun and interesting to work with public health uh, agencies, uh, public health officials, because they know the the public health aspects of, mm -hmm. of things. Uh, so you have to sort of try to combine what are the public health needs that they have in a particular jurisdiction with what can the statistics do and cannot do. If you don't mind me asking, um, are is your work essentially, are you applying these models in different silos to different public health authorities. So for example, like perhaps uh, that each New York borough you might be reporting to and you deploy them to those. And then there's the greater city of New York and there's multiple cities. Or is this more of a, you scan on the national level and then you send the relevant information to local authorities? Uh, most of it is done more locally. Not, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so in New York City, for example, is the New York City Health Department. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that seems local for a city, but I mean, the city has, uh, what is it, eight or nine million people. Mm -hmm. So it's, of course, a, a huge area. Uh, but otherwise, it could be uh, the, uh, the Illinois State Health Department who does it for Illinois, and uh, Indiana House State Health Department does it for Indiana. Uh, there are, there, it has been used on a national level also. Uh, but maybe more retrospectively, not so much prospectively for uh, for the early detection because it's really the state health departments typically that are responsible for this kind of surveillance. Mm -hmm. And the same yeah. in Canada, for example. Uh, so the Quebec uh, public health department is using it for Quebec and so on. Do the models need um, uh, a large amount of, for example, hand tuning or adjustment as they're being applied to these different locations? So essentially, like, is there a team of grad students and postdocs and professors who essentially each time some of the surveillance, uh, these surveillance algorithms or the models are being applied to a new location? Is there a lot of essentially activity or is it just essentially you hook it up and you make sure that it works within the current data framework and then see what happens? So it's usually done by the health department staff. Mm -hmm. um, they have to, um, I mean, they have to do it with their data, and then they have to sort of define the geography of the area. Uh, so, what are the latitudes and longitudes for the census tracts or, or census block group or zip codes, whatever they're using, for their particular state or or city? Uh, but that's sort of the main part of the customization, and then the rest. Uh, is often fairly standard, um, and there is the software that uh, is the free. There's a free software called SatScan um, that can be downloaded from SatScan.org. So S-A-T Scan stands for Space and Time Scan Statistic. So uh, health departments download that software, and then they can run the analysis, and it's fairly straightforward for them. So it's not too uh, complicated, I think. Cool. And the, software, the, the method and software are used by, uh, I think, almost all the state health departments in the U.S. and, of course, by CDC and uh, many health agencies around the world. Yeah, but for different diseases, so some may use it more for infectious diseases, others might use it more for cancer, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to hit on the cancer uh, bit in a second. But before we do, I was interested in the, the multiple comparisons aspect, just to uh, double back on some of the specifics. Um, is it essentially because you have uh, multiple time periods over which you can scan? Um, presumably, you also might have multiple uh, localities or, I guess, spatial elements. What are the on what are sort of the different features by which you are adjusting for multiple comparison? And I guess one of the other questions is, um, what is your intuition about how to do that? Given that effectively a lot of these outcomes are correlated, so essentially. Um, the um, hypothesis for which you're adjusting, um, you're not just testing a large number of independent hypotheses. You are effectively 
uh, testing. I assume that you're testing these things and they're fairly correlated or at least correlated in some level that might not be clear. So the multiple testing is taken care of with uh, with uh, uh, with scan statistics, and that was something that was invented in the 1960s by uh, Professor Joe Naus at Rutgers University. Uh, and and in the simplest version, it's just the time. Mm-hmm. So you have a timeline, and then you have observations in time, and then you see are there any clusters, uh, or or is this just comes from a uniform distribution? Uh, and you're conditional the total number of observations seen. So you're not interested in how many observations there are. You're interested in how they are distributed over time. Uh, so what the scan statistics does in time is it sort of drags a window uh, along uh, uh, along this timeline, and then it sees where uh, where are there cl- is, is, is there a cluster, and then it evaluates the probability of that. Uh, uh, that, that would happen anywhere along mm-hmm. the timeline. Uh, so what happens is that if it's truly uniform, then you only have a, a, a 0.05% risk of rejecting the null uh, for any place on the, uh, on, the, on, 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 the, on the timeline or when the space of a geography. So uh, if they're truly, if it's all, if it's truly are no clusters, in the data set, then 95% of the time we will project, uh, we will not reject the null hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And 5% we will erroneously reject the null hypothesis uh, for some, some location there. So that's how we sort of uh, adjust for the multiple testing. So it's not a bone for only type adjustments, which is sort of more com- most common one. Uh, but they don't work in a scan statistic because these intervals are so dependent and these circles, because uh, we look at this circle and then this other circle, which is almost the same, but just a little bit off. Uh, so there will be thousands and thousands of circles all overlapping. So therefore, a Bonfoni type adjustment wouldn't, would be far too conservative. At the end, that's what we used instead. Uh, a scan statistic, which is sort of another way to do uh, multiple uh, adjustment for the multiple testing of many overlapping intervals and and uh, circles. Yeah, that's uh, that was what was popping in my mind because I had assumed that you weren't doing something as was it fair to say ham fisted as a Bonferroni adjustment because effectively when you're looking at these time periods, you know, a test on Monday versus Monday plus one hour of Tuesday, you know, those aren't independent, and so to s- essentially be doubling your uh, possible airspace is not realistic. You know, it's essentially, it's a marginal increase on top of that. Um, exactly. That's exactly why the Bonfermi type adjustments are not, uh, does not work in these settings. Can you use any, um, does any sort of like biological or mechanistic knowledge uh, make its way into uh, these adjustments? So effectively, given what you know about certain diseases and for example, their incubation time or the amount of time that it takes for them to uh, wear off or recovery periods. Does any of that information actually work itself in, or is that uh, too complex? No, that's a very good question, and the answer is yes, it does. So depending on the disease, you know, the, for example, the maximum uh, temporal length of the outbreaks that you're looking at could, could vary depending on what disease it is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it might be enough to have a week only. Sometimes you might have a few months. Mm-hmm. depending on what type of uh, disease it is. Um, the other thing that comes in is in the geography. I mean, the easiest is just to have the latitude and longitude for each, let's say, census tract. Mm-hmm. And then you'll see which ones, you have one latitude and longitude for the center of your census tract, and then you see which ones are close and which ones are not close to each other. But if you want to be a little bit more sophisticated, you can take into account the, the geography more closely because maybe... Two places are very close, but there's water in between. Mm-hmm. So there's actually not very much uh, communication. You have to sort of maybe it's, maybe it's the river. You have to drive up uh, 20 miles up the river and over the bridge and then back. Mm-hmm. So in effect, they, they are so geographically they are very close to each other, just across the river. But in practice, they are not in terms of uh, where people go shopping, for example, and so on. Yeah, uh, but that also depends a little bit on what is the 
what is the source of the potential outbreak. If it's, for example, salmonella, we were looking for more foodborne things, maybe they shouldn't be closed. On the other hand, if it's Legionnaire's disease in a cooling tower, well, uh, that can, the, even if the cooling tower is on one side of the river, that can sort of, if the wind is in the right direction, it can go into the other, other side. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you may want to do that and sometimes not, for depending on the disease and the geography. Yeah, I guess because one of the sort of uh, an imminent example that comes to, to my mind about how uh, geography might uh, essentially, I view it as like a sort of a, a geographical length scale. So how quickly that these sort of events decorrelate over a uh, small distance versus a lo- large distance. And you think about something, for example, that is uh, transmissible. Um, and you have a transmissible disease, but it happens in an affluent neighborhood, for example, such that uh, the people don't need to go outside or that the people don't need, they can essentially stay at home and remain um, essentially segregated from the rest of the community. And in contrast, you might have a working class neighborhood such that the person does not have that benefit. And then they can effectively someone with a uh, communicable illness or an infectious illness um, within that working class um, community effectively, you know, not having the luxury to just stay home means that they do have to go out and that there is effectively more of an exposure. um, There's more of an area of exposure on exposure trail. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true. And uh, I mean, COVID is a very good example for that because uh, uh, those of us who are in the professional class, like scientists or or journalists or, or attorneys, uh, Etc. cetera, uh, have often been able to work at home, even younger people who are t- extremely low risk from COVID, while working class people have, um, they, they must work to make a living. So mm-hmm. they have been out and about uh, much more. And we also see that in the statistics for uh, uh, COVID that, uh, for example, t- from Toronto, Los Angeles, uh, 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 in the very beginning, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, it was fairly even in the in the more or less affluent neighborhoods, but then when the lockdown was put in, um, it continued to go up in the working class neighborhoods while the more affluent neighborhoods uh, was held down. So the lockdowns were sort of a, a shift of the burden of the disease from the uh, shifting the burden from the more affluent to the less affluent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also uh, reminded me, there's a, a recent study, I believe, that was looking at cell phone data, and it looked at the mobility of just the general population um, due to cell phone data. And it was very clear that effectively people with uh, white-collar jobs had the ability to stay essentially immobile. They were less, they moved around less, whereas people um, who have to um, work blue-collar jobs in person, physical jobs, you know, you can't hide behind your computer screen. Um, that those people essentially still had to keep moving and circulating throughout the population. Yeah. Um, and, and that was the sort of the uh, the basic idea behind the Great Barrington Declaration that I wrote with uh, uh, two other infectious disease technologists, uh, uh, Professor Sunita Gupta at Oxford University and uh, uh, Professor Jay Barashaya at uh, Stanford Medical School, that instead of protecting the fluent what we should do since everybody can get COVID, but there's more than a thousand-fold difference in the mortality risk between the oldest and the youngest. So the best way to minimize uh, mortality would be to uh, uh, to protect the older people, whether they are affluent or working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, we fail to protect the older people, especially the working class older people. So instead of protecting the affluent, we should have focused on protecting the older people um, while letting younger people sort of continue with uh, normal, near normal activities uh, to sort of keep uh, society uh, running so that we didn't get all these uh, collateral damage uh, on public health, uh, like missed cancer screenings or cancer treatment that has sort of gone undetected mm-hmm. or worse, cardiovascular disease outcomes that we've had, plummeting immunization rates for children. And of course, uh, uh, worse diabetic treatments, and of course, uh, uh, a mental health situation that has uh, deteriorated a lot during this year. 
Yeah, I've definitely seen, um, I've seen, for example, that I believe that uh, cancer diagnosis rates in, I believe, multiple countries. Um, I've only looked at a few uh, countries that I'm sort of more familiar with their healthcare systems, but that, for example, cancer diagnosis rates have dropped precipitously. And obviously, you know, we're, the cells are still splitting, um, you know, human be- the, the, the underlying mechanism has not changed. Um, the amount that keeping people inside away from the sun is not the only reason why these cancer rates are dropping. It's because effectively there's a low, uh, the, there's a lower detection threshold and, um, or I guess an increased detection threshold where, um, people aren't being detected. And obviously that's, um, there's, I guess, a competing risk aspect to that, but at the same time, um, you know, w- with our aging population, we do have these immense burdens for people as they increase the risk of cancer. And you, you do have to be weigh- weighing that out. And for example, fewer young people have cancer, but uh, if uh, if you are diverting your attention to one specific ailment, you're missing out on the holistic public health aspect. Exactly. And that sort of goes against the basic principles of public health, that you have to look at public health as a whole. So, uh, uh, I mean, so the number of... Uh, Reported cancer has gone down, and it would have been great if that was due to less cancer, but mm-hmm. uh, obviously it's not. It's just that they're not getting detected, as you're saying. So, uh, uh, But it doesn't have immediate impact on mortality, because usually it takes time from detection until you have mortality. But uh, let's say a woman uh, who uh, might now die from cervical cancer, let's say three or four years from now, instead of living another 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. So these consequences of the lockdowns uh, on public health is something that we're going to have to live with and die with for uh, many years to come, unfortunately. Yeah. And I guess one of the other bits on the sort of the uh, time scale issue is that effectively the detrimental aspects of these decisions have meant that um, you can't even measure them because, you know, it's, it is a bit, you know, there's an estimate how many people are going to die of, um, of cancer in five years, um, how many people because of a mistreatment or something like that. So effectively, um, data still needs to be collected. Um, and I guess you still do have estimates of, um, you know, you can look at these long running, um, cancer diagnosis trends. You look at the difference between, um, what the long running trends are and how many people were diagnosed last year. And effectively that means that you have this many free agents out there who you now need to go back and, retrospectively try to track down, um, you know, essentially if you, if you have 2 million cases on average and last year, you only identified half a million, that means you might have 1.5 million people out there who now you need to go and identify and find out, okay, who has cancer that we missed? And now it's at a later stage. Uh, Yes. So uh, we will eventually, I think, know how many extra deaths we receive will have from cancer and how many uh, life years were lost. But uh, you're right, it's sort of not easy to know that now, um, even if we know how many undiagnosed uh, cancers uh, there have been. So you're very right about that. One other bit um, that I find curious is obviously, you know, we live on a planet and that planet has two hemispheres. And therefore that there are, for example, seasonal um, differences between different locations. And it seemed a bit of an odd thing at the beginning to be comparing a large number of countries across both hemispheres, across a large number of geographical locations and making inference on what tactics were effective at slowing down COVID. Because effectively, you know, this isn't um this isn't a scientific lab experiment where you can repeat it a thousand times under a large number of conf- confounding factors. And um the issue of essentially um especially, you know, for example, people in the media making comparisons between two countries' success rates, um, you know, marginally into a pandemic when two different countries might be on opposite hemispheres of the world. And therefore there's essentially this massive, um, there, there's a massive shift. And so essentially, uh, depending on when the pandemic hit a different, a specific country, you might either be protected or not protected. Um, and so essentially there's again, another thing where there's this, a shift in where, whether or not you're actually assess the efficacy of an intervention. Yeah, so the seasonal patterns is very clear for COVID. And so uh, we can see that from the Southern and, and Northern Hemisphere. And uh, I mean, 
the pandemic started, I guess, the first cases were probably around November 2019. So those countries on the Northern Hemisphere were very susceptible to this pandemic early on. Um, and therefore, it was sort of, it came into the countries before we could do much about it. Uh, it was already widespread. And then it's too late uh, to, to do, uh, for example, to close your, your borders and put mm-hmm. the country in quarantine. Um, uh, so in a way, the smartest the strategy is to put the, your own country in the Southern Hemisphere mm-hmm. uh, because then you have actually the option of closing down the country uh, like New Zealand did, for example. Uh, they had a few cases there, but they could easily stamp those out because it was their summer. And then they closed their border with a 15-day quarantine. And they still had, of course... They still had cases as Australia as well, so you can't seal the borders completely. But uh, they were able by doing that to sort of keep uh, keep uh, the numbers low. And now, if they vaccinate everybody quickly, uh, I think they will be quite well off. But that was never an option that was available to uh, the United States or any other country in the, in the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. What about uh, equatorial countries? Because um, one of the things that uh, strikes me about a place like New Zealand is that not only is it on the Southern Hemisphere, but it's actually fairly southerly in the Southern Hemisphere. So effectively, um, it will have more extreme cold conditions when its winter does arrive. Um, I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure you can take, uh, or previously you could actually take commercial flights to go fly over in an- Antarctica from New Zealand. So essentially you could go look at the you know Arctic penguins or whatever or the ice sheets in Antarctica in just a normal um, commercial flight, and so um, you know that's there's a difference between uh, a southern a country in the southern southern hemisphere that's just mildly below the equator versus substantially below the equator. Is there any information that you've had about what uh, what's happening in these sort of equatorial regions? Uh, yeah, so they might have a very different seasonal pattern, but the thing is also we don't know exactly what's driving the seasonality. Is it the temperature? Is it humidity? Is it uh, sunlight? Uh, or other things? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is something, but we don't know yet exactly what's driving it. So if we look at a country like India, for example, which is closer to the equator, um, or then uh, uh, we don't necessarily know what is driving the seasonality there. Mm-hmm. Um, but India also has a seasonal pattern, so that's clear, but we don't know exactly what it is that's driving the, the seasonal patterns, and hopefully we'll find out eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so uh, what was the next thing I want to talk about? So um, if, if you don't mind me just sort of hopping around subjects, because I, I, one thing I didn't want to miss out on, because this sounded really interesting, was um, this sort of safety surveillance um, that you're doing for infectious diseases. And you said that this also applies to things like cancer. Um, yeah. So how, do, how does that, how do you essentially bridge that gap? Because um, I guess, you know, there's maybe the, um, there, the, I guess usually when I think of cancer, I think of it as essentially a base rate um, that human beings have as a, as a species. And then there are different sort of exposure factors on top of that that would mean that people would have um, essentially heightened risk in certain areas. And obviously, there are some pre- genetic predispositions for these things. But um, how do you bridge the gap from something like Legionnaire's disease or Salmonella to cancer, um, cancer clustering and things like that? So one difference is that in cancer, uh, we are we're not necessarily so interested in uh, new outbreaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the bigger interest there is to understand the geographical patterns of cancer, to see if there are any areas with higher risk than other areas, and then try to figure out why. Uh, <clears throat> but also there are situations where the population are concerned about a potential cancer cluster because they talk to the neighbors or, or somebody working in the same place and they find out that uh, there were several cancers of some type in the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's going to happen by chance uh, if, you, if you do a random point process. Mm-hmm. You will have... Uh, our eyes are very good, so we will be able to pick up some clusters even in random data. 
Uh, all statisticians know that, but not everybody in the public. So then the key thing there is to see, okay, uh, there is a cancer cluster, let's say there's a leukemia cluster somewhere in New Jersey. Uh, the question is, well, is it really uh, a true cluster that's due to something common, the risk factor, or is it just like a chance occurrence because there will be clusters somewhere? And we can't just draw a circle around the cluster and then compare that with the rest because we call that the Texas sharpshooter effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Texan who first shoots uh, his gun with a hole in the barn door and then he draws the uh, the, the, bullet, target. Yeah. the target around that hole. And of course, he always hit in the bullseye because of that. So that's sort of similar in cancer classes. We can't just draw the circle around that town in New Jersey that there was a concern about a cancer cluster. So instead, we have to look, let's say, at all of New Jersey. And then we can do the scan statistics, now a purely, temp- a purely spatial one without time, let's say from data from the last 10 years or so. And then we can uh, run uh, uh, an, an analysis for leukemia in New Jersey and see, uh, are there any clusters there? And if so, are they in that location that was suspected? And if so, is this likely a chance occurrence uh, or or truly due to something? So these statistical methods can be used to detect any cancer clusters, uh, but equally important, it can be used to, to sort of determine whether those reported cancer clusters may just be due to chance. And my experience is that uh, small cancer clusters that are reported in the media are off, most, most often uh, chance occurrences because clusters will occur somewhere uh, just by chance. Yeah. I guess uh, my, only, my only correction on that is that the reporting of it is not a chance occurrence because, of course, it makes for an excellent headline. So the... Uh, well, while the while the disease cluster itself might be a chance occurrence, the fact that the media will report on it as something to uh, garner some attention is is not a uh, random, not a random chance. Uh, I think you're correct on that one. So yes, does um does something like uh the um so I guess maybe for people who aren't as familiar with cancer um or various cancers, you know, obviously tumors themselves can be heterogeneous. Um, so effectively you can have a tumor, a cancer tumor that is comprised of essentially or not multiple strands. I'm not sure species in the right word, but essentially multiple, um, distinct, uh, cell populations within that tumor. Can you use any information about the exact nature of which, uh, SNP mutations, for example, are available? Um, do, for example, do you, if, um, if two humans, if multiple humans were, for example, exposed to something that would cause cancer, would their mutations be? Would their mutations tend to be in the same way? So, would essentially, would a cancerous patient mutate in the same way, or do they all maybe mutate in different ways, but it leads to the same effect? Uh, I don't know if we know a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, within cancers like leukemia, there are different types of leukemia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in many cases, we don't even know what's causing many cancers. Obviously, we know that lung cancer is caused by smoking, most of it, and we know uh, other things as well. But if you look at, for example, leukemia or brain cancer, we know very little about, about what's causing these cancers. So then it's also hard to know what causes specific types of cancers. Uh, but one could, uh, uh, could look at geographically and see, instead of seeing if the excess of of let's say leukemia, uh, we can check to see are there any places which has more of the AML leukemia versus the ALL leukemias, uh, so that the proportion of one particular type is higher than the other, and then adjusting for sort of the general distribution of of, of le- leukemia. Another thing that we we sometimes do. Uh, is to look at the stage of cancer as they are detected. So, uh, for example, breast cancer can be detected very early on or very late. And it's, of course, better to detect it early because then we can initiate treatment sooner. And that's why we do mammography screening to be able to detect it as early as possible. But we can then look at geographically to see if uh, there's some area where the breast cancers are detected at the later stage. So we compare late and early stage. So is there a high proportion of late stage compared to the early stage? 
and that can then indicate for public health uh, departments where there is uh, a weakness or a lack of uh, 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 of mammography screening, and where that has to be sort of be uh, uh, done better and reaching that population better. Uh, so that's another way to use this for very practical purposes in terms of uh, providing uh, good healthcare and where there are gaps in the healthcare system. Uh, on the issue of late screen, does is there any research in going back and sort of uh, correcting the retrospective record based on what we found in later screens? So say, for example, do you find a stage four cancer patient? Um and you have essentially, so you have cancer data, let's just uh, keep things uh, simple for, you know, one, two, three, four, five years back. And when you have these late stage cancer patients, effectively that does tell you, you know, you don't just wind up with stage four cancer one day. There was a development period uh, that was missed out on. And is there any work in sort of adjusting what might be that latent variable of um, underlying cancer based on the data that we have um, that we receive in the future? Do you mean to try to find out when, when they when when I sort of went from stage one to stage two and to three and four, like the timing of that? I don't, just, I don't think I quite understood what oh, you asked. Uh, so the idea is that um, you know you can identify what the um, the cancer rate of a population is by looking at you know when they're diagnosed. Um, so and so you might have like a phase one cancer uh, data for um, four years ago. But then as you get a stage four patient who previously didn't have any uh, medical record of cancer, is anything done to adjust the stage one rates of years ago because you know that they had to have gone through that stage at some point? Oh, I think I understand your question better now. So, so one, one issue is, for example, if, uh, if cancer screening suddenly goes up, mm-hmm. if we do more cancer screening, then we will find more cases than we otherwise would have. Mm-hmm. So we might get an increase in in uh, cancer, uh, but it's not due to more cancer. It's really due to earlier detection. So it'll be like a shift. And therefore, what looks like an increase in cancers is really not an increase in cancers, just that we're detecting it earlier, which will then maybe later on sort of uh, that effect will eventually go away when, when we're sort of a steady state for the detections. But there has been work done. Uh, at uh, uh, by, for example, uh, uh, Rocky Foyer at the National Cancer Institute and his colleagues to look at understanding whether these increases are due to actual increases in cancer incidence or if they are artifacts of uh, changes in screening practices. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we're going to have to do now during the pandemic also when screening went down. We had to sort of try to understand uh, how changes in cancers were affected by differences in, in screening versus if there were anything that led to more or less uh, cancer overall. Yeah. Also, I guess uh, another thing is um, I'm trying to decide between two things. One, I, I wouldn't mind asking a bit more about how certain people are about these basal disease rates. Uh, cancer is one, but you know, um, uh, uh, salmonella, any of these uh, baseline diseases, even something as set in stone is, for example, mortality, where how well do we actually know what the baseline rates of these incidences are? That, that'd be something I'd like to discuss. Um, but also um, the changes in instrumentation over time, you know, effectively, how can you adjust um, uh, one screening method versus another? Um, obviously, you know, you could, uh, the sort of like bland Altman agreement type stuff comes to mind, but the other, the other issues like um, if you have two screening methods, uh, and you, you're replacing uh, method A with method B, do people need to essentially adjust, or what adjustments do they do to make sure that um, the data is cohesive over time over different locations? Or is that just a little bit too complicated and people sort of hope to uniformly switch out the screening process over time? No, I think you have to take into account that, that into account when you monitor cancer rates over time. Um, and there's some very nice, I haven't done those kind of work myself, but there's some very nice modeling that has been done by various research groups mm-hmm. to understand um, cancer rates over time uh, in terms of how it is affected by screening or if you look at mortality, it's also affected by mortality rates. Changes in mortality rates are affected by both by screening 
as well as by uh, changes in treatments. Uh, so I think it's very important to do that, and also very interesting, challenging uh, epidemiological and statistical problems that are uh, fun to work on, I think, and a lot of people have done some good work on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know uh, just from uh, some of my own research where it's always interesting, for example, when a patient is being monitored via one, uh, call it probe or mode of acquisition, one uh, vital sign monitoring device, and they actually switch or they have an ancillary device as well. And you can essentially see these two different devices or even more or even multiple channels from the same device all trying to measure the same thing. And the idea is that if you are going to be creating a, uh, a monitoring or surveillance system based on the data from those, um, it's heavily dependent on what on which device you're using. Um, yep. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it definitely would not want to be... Um, oh, go on. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, uh, and as, at the same time, I think cancer is probably easier than many other diseases because we have usually good cancer registries. Mm-hmm. So, for example, influenza is harder because we don't test everybody for influenza. We would test very few people if they actually have influenza. So there you also have to have interesting models to monitor uh, how, how influenza. And, and some years we have uh, more influenza and other years we have less influenza. Uh, but that also requires some uh, some interesting statistical models to uh, model that, and there is more uncertainty because most most cancers are uh, are detected and, and reported, mm-hmm. but in influenza, only very small, uh, very few of them are actually confirmed to be influenza uh, reported as such. Uh, what diseases? Because um, that, that's a useful thing. Essentially, the portion of the proportion of the disease population who you actually capture and get data on. Um, what are the good sort of like dividing lines between those diseases? Something like cancer, it seems, um, you know, obviously it's good to hear that most of those are caught. So we have a fairly complete idea about what the cancer population looks like. Uh, influenza, sort of these common infectious diseases, on the other hand, obviously we are collecting cold data um, person by person. So um, are there any sort of like dividing lines or mechanistic lines by which you can capture most of the population of certain diseases and you don't capture most of the population of others? I think one dividing line is whether it, is a, it exists a registry or not. Mm-hmm. And most places have cancer registries. Uh, another uh, birth defects, uh, we also have very good information on because we have birth defect registries. Uh, and of course, that's very important to have that. So diseases for which we have registries, we have much more information on. For other diseases, we have to rely often on electronic health records or um, uh, insurance claims data. Mm-hmm. And they can be uh, very useful for other diseases, but they don't usually have the same quality as a registry because they are um, um, false positives and false negatives and so on uh, to a larger extent of, with a registry. Uh, and on that more general question, how much is medical coding of use for these types of things? Because effectively, um, there's more to medical, if, if, if you know the answer, um, you know, obviously, um, there's more to medical coding than just simply recording data. And so, you know, there's more motivations than simply saying we're trying to create this objective uh, view about what types of diseases and what types of treatments people require, because obviously there's an economic incentive to various types of coding is is are those are those types of data actually used in the academic uh, research as reliable useful data or is it a little bit is, are they taking the grain of salt or are people sort of just trying to sort through and find out what actually um, corresponds to reality and what doesn't so we use uh, those electronic health records and insurance claims data a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, in research, and they are very, very useful and very important data sets to use. Um, and they will contain information from many, many millions, tens of millions of, of patients. And one area, for example, which I've been involved in, which are very useful, is to evaluate uh, uh, side effects of drugs and vaccines. Mm-hmm. Because when a drug or vaccine is approved, maybe it has been tested on a thousand people, or in best cases, a few thousand. So we know about common adverse reactions, and uh, uh, if it's approved, those common reactions were all mild. Uh, 
but they could be more rare uh, adverse reactions, uh, serious adverse reactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it could be that there are adverse reactions in certain groups that were not part of the clinical trials, like older people or children or pregnant women in terms of birth defects and so on. So uh, these data sets are enormously useful for looking at that. And uh, that's one thing we do. I've, I've been very closely involved with the CDC vaccine safety data link to develop methods for monitoring the safety of, uh, of vaccines, both the data mining methods where we don't have any, like just looking for any type of adverse reaction, uh, as well as sequential analysis methods where we try to uh, detect any potential adverse reaction as soon as possible. And it's important for two reasons. Uh, one is because if there's a problem, uh, then we want to detect it and we'll detect it as soon as possible. If there's not a problem, then we want to be able to say we don't have a problem and therefore it's safe to take this drug for pregnant women, or it's safe to take this vaccine for uh, for older people, and so on. Um, in sort of uh, for these topics, where essentially you're trying to, when you're exposing a new population to a treatment, or essentially not ne- necessarily new, but uh, you're expanding the in of the number of people under consideration, and you're trying to see because um, it's very intuitive why how this sort of same. Um, uh, the the intuition behind this statistically is, you know, we have this uh, basal rate of these uh, adverse events in a population, and then we're trying to compare it to a specific uh, subset of the population, which has had been either exposed to this treatment or exposed to um, some, you know, cooling towers or something like that, and um, making the comparison and saying, okay, does this pa- a patient population actually, um, are they experiencing a higher rate of risk? And then I guess on top of that, there's the issue of Given what they are, uh, given this high rate of risk, for example, from a treatment, are they? Um, does that actually outweigh all the other risks in the world that they have to deal with? So, for example, the idea is you get vaccinated, um, and it obviously it reduces one risk, but it's, it'll, it could expose you to other risks as well. Uh, for example, an allergic reaction to the vaccine, which I assume is something that a lot of people don't know whether or not they're allergic. Um, to any given vaccine or even heard that they might have an allergic reaction. Um, so essentially people are trying to uh, weigh out these different risks. Uh, a similar one might be, for example, you know, staying inside and uh, never leaving your house for, I don't know, 18 months. And, you know, there's a risk to that. Um, there's also, you know, you, you won't you won't get hit by a car, but at the same time, if you're being sedentary, you know, there's a cardiovascular risk to that. There's a psychological risk, unless you're a data scientist and you already work in front of a computer, you know, 18 hours a day anyway. But um, how do you how do you sort of weigh through those things? And are, are there some that get a higher priority than others? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's good to be outside in the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need uh, sunlight is good with vitamin D and uh, good to exercise. So it's always good to be outside for your health. So that's, uh, uh, that's something I think we can all agree on. Uh, but... I guess it depends on uh, on the disease. So, for example, if we have a, a, a drug for cancer and it's a, uh, it's a terminal cancer and a drug can uh, extend your life by a few years, then most people are willing to take uh, side effects. And we know that many uh, cancer drugs that have side effects will be accepted. Mm-hmm because it is doing something good to us in extending life. So there we have quite a high tolerance, I think, for adverse reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with uh, uh, the COVID vaccine. If, if somebody is in the 70s, if they get infected, they have a, it's not a huge risk, but they have certainly a considerable risk of, of dying from the COVID. So there, there's a huge benefit of the vaccine. So even if there's a small risk, that's the risk worth taking mm-hmm. uh, without any doubt. And every old person uh, should get the vaccine uh, to, um, uh, to reduce the risk. So that's, uh, uh, so, so that's very clear for, for older people, but then for younger people, because it, it takes, uh, when a new drug or vaccine comes on the market, it takes a few years, a couple of years before we know about the adverse reactions. Mm-hmm. So for example, if, if you're going to buy a new car, the car, I suggest you buy the latest model 
because it usually has the fanciest uh, uh, features and so on. But if you're taking a drug, uh, unless there's no alternative, it's usually better to take a drug that's been on the market for a few years because mm -hmm. then we know about the adverse reactions. We don't know that about yet about the new drugs. So new drugs, um, if it's a unique thing that uh, we don't have any alternatives, then we take it. But other than that, it's often better to take an older drug. So for example, for, for younger people for the COVID vaccine, we know there are certain adverse reactions, but also the risk or mortality is very low for younger people. So they are, and they are still, we still don't know the full uh, spectrum of, uh, of adverse reactions to the COVID vaccine since it's so recent. So there, there's not clear what the, uh, the benefit risk uh, calculations are. So uh, in such situations, I think people have to decide on their own whether they want it. And uh, for example, we shouldn't have mandates for vaccines in such situations where they are still unclear what the, what the benefit-risk ratio is, since we by default cannot know that until a few years after uh, the vaccine has been, been in use. Yeah, that is it is an interesting aspect that effectively there is long-term surveillance. It's been well established uh, that long-term surveillance is necessary to essentially, you know, there's a reason that they're called rare adverse events because they are rare. And these rare events, if you miss one of them, effectively you're getting a zero point versus, you know, actually having a concrete estimate about what, what it comes from and then comparing your risk of those events to, you know, anything else that comes along the way. Is there any... Um, way that people can essentially apply the actual vaccines are meant to elicit an immune response. And so, for example, you can actually tell, um, well, presumably you can get an antibody test after your vaccine to understand whether or not you've actually had an immune response. And that seems like something that would be extremely useful, especially when we look at the, uh, I believe it's the Delta type variant that has popped up in the UK. Um, the last data that I saw was something like, um, of the 60 people in the UK who have died of the Delta variant, I might be getting these numbers completely wrong. I'm just trying to remember them off the top of my head. But um, I think there's uh, 60 people of them, of them, uh, of the 15 who died, they had been fully vaccinated. And the question there is, well, did they have any immune response? Um, you know, previously, did they have an antibody test that indicated that the uh, vaccine gave them an immune response? Because there are plenty of people where if you don't have an immune response, well, then it didn't do its job. That whole efficacy thing that we've been trying to monitor. Um, but given that we know that there is essentially, there's a biological mechanism that causes the, this reaction to the, the vaccine, is there any way that we can essentially try to guess what these long-term effects are better than just saying we have to collect data and find out? Because um, obviously, it, you know, even if it's just purely, uh, you know, inductive speculation that um, we, we know that these types of immune responses happen for this variety of uh, vaccine. And therefore, we know um, that these might be the types of things to look for. Yeah, so with vaccines, there are certain things, certain outcomes that we typically always look for, irrespective of what vaccine there is, because there's been sort of past situations where we see those things. So one is anaphylaxis, which is an allergic reaction immediately after you get the vaccine. Uh, for which the, there's a very, very small risk from COVID, so which means that you should hang around in the vaccination site for half an hour just in case it happens, so you have medical mm -hmm. personnel to, to, to take care of you. Uh, another one example is Guillain-Barré syndrome, which wherever there's a new vaccine, we always test for that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for childhood vaccines, we usually look at febrile seizures as one outcome. Uh, from uh, from vaccines, but uh, then there are other things that can come up that are unexpected. Uh, so when it comes to what kind of adverse reaction to look at, there are some things sort of a standard thing that we look at, but then there are other things that could be a complete surprise. Cool. Yeah, but it's hard to but it's hard to predict what might be the adverse reactions without looking at long-term data. So mm -hmm. I think it's hard to predict, uh, uh, okay, because this vaccine has this mechanism and therefore, uh, uh, and, and we look at antibodies or something to see what happens in the body for the few weeks later, and therefore we suspect this type of adverse reaction. I think that's very difficult to do. Um, we don't know enough about medicine to be able to do that without actually looking at long-term data. 
Well, Martin, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation and um, hearing about the sort of statistical mindset that goes behind some of um, some of the work that you do for uh, essentially surveillance. And I think it is really interesting because um, you're answering multiple very difficult scientific questions. You're trying to use data where you have it, and you're trying to use just sound logic um, where you have it as well. Um, so I do appreciate that. I also appreciate very much your uh, scientific integrity um, and everything that you've been doing. Um, and I really look forward to having you back sometime. If you enjoyed this, we can talk. We can pick up another topic and um, continue the conversation. But Martin, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you, Glenn. Uh, one of the things that's fun with being a scientist is to talk about science uh, uh, with other scientists. And uh, I really enjoy this. And uh, I'll be happy to be back some other time. So thank you so much, Glenn. Yeah. Actually, just say, yeah, I have to say, um, you know, I because I, I, I've obviously watched quite a few of your interviews and this thing is like, I wonder if he's actually gotten to have a conversation with a statistician yet. Um, and so uh, I've, I've, I've appreciated that. And that's one of the places where I think I'm wanting this, these conversations to go where I think a lot of statisticians are eager to hear from scientists, very specifically asking data-driven and scientific questions um, and statistical questions that they might not get from other sources. So, you know, you can always have a very good scientist and two scientists having a conversation. But, you know, statisticians, whenever we read the news or read a journal article or something like that, we tend to think, say, oh, well, I would actually have asked this question, this question, this question, because there's cool stuff that I'd like to clarify. And I think I'm hoping that this can be sort of a hub for statisticians asking very data and science questions. Yeah, you're the first statistician that has interviewed me, so uh, I appreciate that. And it's sort of, it was nice to be able to uh, uh, go into a little bit more about the depth of the statistics and be able to actually mention uh, statistical terms. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and get a more thorough discussion that way. So I like that. Ooh, yeah, well, actually, in the future, I very soon will have a sketch pad so we can actually draw out ideas. Um, and maybe that will help with some of our uh, point process conversations and things like that. Because oh, I think, yeah, because yeah, I know that um, maybe using some of these terms, it's very visual for me because obviously, you know, I come, I've seen plenty of spatial temporal modeling. I've seen plenty of the uh, Gaussian process and latent process modeling that uh, goes into these things. So maybe maybe it'll be easier to help people hop on board and understand these things better if I can be there sketching out ideas as you're uh, talking about them. Yeah, a little sketchbook is good for uh, discussing mm -hmm. science and statistics. So. Cool. Well, Martin, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Glenn. Great pleasure. Hey, guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single, simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week, so in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed on the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employer's views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.